I'm still trying to figure out what to make of you. I had my first EGM at GBC. I'm pretty sure you were grieving that you gave only $600,000 to missions. Is it an awkward time for me to share that last year I spoke at a church, there was 10,000 people there. And the pastor told me he was hoping they would raise $55,000 for missions. And, and, and are you grieving that you've only raised $3.5 million to build a building? I'm just saying I think you should celebrate more. Coming from outside, you, you, you look beautiful. I'm just saying... Uh, celebrate what God is doing in you. Seek His pleasure. Grieve less. Because it makes me think that when you're singing on Christ, a solid rock I stand, it makes me think maybe you don't believe it. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, I'm standing on the shifting sand of people's giving. And that makes me nervous. So this is the Advent season. And in the first week of Advent, we celebrate the coming of hope. I'll be honest with you. I grew up in um, an American tribe. Even though I'm from Canada, it was Southern Baptists who came up and reached my parents. And I'm grateful for Southern Baptists. They changed my eternity. Um, they, they raised me. They educated me. They supported my ministry for 30-plus years. Um, but we couldn't do anything that was remotely European, like follow the church calendar, because the Pope lived in Europe, and whatever he was celebrating, you know, we're going to celebrate the opposite. So it, it wasn't until I went to a German Baptist church in Vancouver, Canada, that had died and was getting pressure to, to sell to a developer, that I discovered that the amazing joy of following a church calendar that is almost 2,000 years old. Advent is um, an English word, but English, I think some of you are English majors, right? I apologize bringing my Canadian dialect. English is not even a real language, let's be honest. <laughs> it's not a real language like Chinese or Hebrew, right? It's it's a dialect that is borrowed from hundreds of languages, and the English word Advent is borrowed from the Latin Adventus. It means arrival or coming. And this week, we celebrate the arrival, the coming of hope. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. I know Pastor Arnold forgot the PowerPoint last week. I didn't forget. I just felt like I should be apologizing to you because I might be just enabling you to believe that God's Word needs the embellishment of a funny picture. Um, in fact, one of our young adults posted two pictures on Facebook that just moved me. It was a photo of a row of laps on one side and a row of laps on the other, and in every lap, a Bible opened and a notebook and a pen writing I hope one day that is this entire congregation. So you have a listening guide in your 
uh, ministry in your bulletin, sorry, that's what, in your bulletin you have a, a listening guide. I put the scripture verses in there. It's just a prop. The verses aren't going to stay there forever. Uh, but uh, until, um, and by the way, if you, if you need a Bible, Sherry's going to get you one. So, so let us know. We, we want you to have your own, and we'd love it if you brought it with you. God's word today is taken from Romans 15 as we look at the arrival of hope. And, and perhaps it would be good even if we just uh, defined hope, just to, just to talk about really so we understand what it is that we uh, are expecting this Christmas season. I, I think it should be obvious looking at me, but growing up in my family in Vancouver, uh, children of Scottish immigrants, we didn't eat very well. That's why I'm a short white guy, just so you know. Canadians are usually way taller. But, but our family, I mean, we ate poorly, just saying. My mom was unique. Um, she, her heart broke when she read the newspapers. When the news came on, she, she would just weep. And her children were not going to eat better than Ethiopians. So we grew up on porridge every single morning. That's oats. You call it oats or porridge. We call it porridge. Uh, porridge every single day. And so just so you know, porridge is starvation food for Scottish people. And we ate a lot of potatoes. And you may already know this, but potatoes, that's starvation food for the Irish. And, and, and then one year, my mom read about a famine in the Ukraine, and we had six months of borscht, which beet soup, that's starvation food for Russians. So I got so excited as a 12-year-old when my dad said, hey, we're going to move. You probably never heard of this place, but we're going to move to a country called Malaysia. And I was thinking to myself, finally, I'm going to have food other than porridge. And then the first week, mom comes home and says, hey, they have porridge here too. Same principle, just add more water. <laughs> it was so, so depressing to me. But, you know, by the way, some of the adults are laughing, but they remember when they didn't have much meat. Just so you young people know, you were living with people who had meat once a year on their birthday. I have a friend like that in Malaysia. He invited me to his birthday party. We all began to sing happy birthday. I was singing the cakes coming in behind me. No, it was one chicken drumstick. And I said, Mark, what's, well, that's a new tradition. He said, not for me, because in our family, we never had meat, except on our birthday, we got the drumstick. So every once in a while, my mom would make my favorite meal, roast beef. By the way, this story is going somewhere. <laughs> not just because it was roast beef, but because it was, it was meat, right? And, and I, I could smell it as soon as I went in the house. You know, beef has that beef smell. <laughs> and it, it was glorious. To, I mean, my, my mouth would begin to water just anticipating it. And for, for whatever reason, we'd all be sitting around the table waiting for that food to, to make the table. And the gravy always came in first because my dad would still be in the kitchen carving that roast, right? And, and as soon as it came in, I mean, the whole dining room would fill with the aroma and, and I would just look at that gravy. That gravy is hope. 
You know, if you grew up in church like I did, you know about Hebrews 11, verse 1, right? And, and I, I memorized Shakespeare's version of the Bible, King James. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is evidence of things not seen. Gravy is not the meat. It's evidence of the thing not seen. It's telling me the meat is on the way. That's what hope is. That's what we talk about when we talk about the coming of hope. Now pay attention to this because Christmas is not the meat. We make such a big deal about Christmas. Looking back to that first Christmas, Christmas is the gravy. The meat is coming. When the Lord God, Father of heaven and earth, cracks open the heavens and Jesus comes again, we look back, but we look forward. It creates this hope in us. But more than that, there are other things. Three things I just see right here in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, that, that kindles hope in us. First, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Listen to this. Hope arrives when promises are kept. While I was in uh, Vancouver at Emmanuel Baptist Church, the old German said, hey, Pastor, we need you to take this. We'll call it the pastor's class. It's really a difficult class. Because in that class, there were some really devout believers, and all they wanted when they had a Bible study was to hear a word from God. But in that group, there was also two atheists and one cult member. Uh, you would never have heard of the cult. Just tell you, they don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. He's nasty business. He's the Donald Trump of religion. We don't like him. We don't believe him. We only believe the New Testament. And those three guys would always ask questions that weren't really questions. Questions like, are you serious you believe this stuff? Every time Sunday morning we would meet, they would love to ask questions that would stir up anxiety in the believers because we are so used to hanging around the already convinced we don't know what to do if someone asks us a question and we don't like that niggly little thing we call doubt. Jesus came as a servant to the Jewish law to remind the Jewish people when God speaks, you can trust Him. You don't need to back it up with science you don't need to back it up with evidence. The whole, the Bible is a science book movement. The whole creation science movement. You know what? Science should not have to prove something that you trust. Jesus served under the Jewish law to prove to those doubters in every single synagogue in the first century. Why would you imagine there would be doubters? Because for a thousand years, the prophets have been saying, a Messiah is coming. You're suffering now, but a liberator is on his way. For a thousand years, they heard that. Do you not think that in every single synagogue, there might have been some intellectual Jew saying, sure, he's coming. 
We need to pick up our own swords. Let's stop waiting for this guy. What do those prophets know? When's the last time we heard from Yahweh? In fact, when's the last time we saw a burning bush with a voice of God speaking out of it? What do you do with those big blocks of silence in the Old Testament? You wait for hope to arrive. 750 years before Christ was born at that first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 2 verse 3 says this, and many nations will come to us and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go there that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now notice, he did not say, Jews will come. And say, let's go to the holy mountain and seek the Lord because this Lord will teach us His ways and we will walk in His paths. No, He uses this very specific word in the Old Testament. Goyim. By the way, that's the word from which we get our English word, not an English word, Gentiles. There's actually no such biblical word, Gentiles. The only word is an Old Testament word, which is goyim. Gentiles is, the, is a bit of gloss from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. Gentilis, which means the outsiders. But the word was goyim, a pejorative term. I've heard plenty of pejorative terms in my life in Asia. I know there's a difference between a Wai Bangran and a Lao Wai or Guailo. Amokau. I know them. Right? There's pejorative terms. Right? But in Scripture, it was just ta'ethne. In this Scripture, the Apostle Paul is simply saying, all the ethnicities will say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that this Lord, the God of the Jewish people, would teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. Do you see what the Jews didn't get? They thought, oh, He's going to send us a liberator. But the true good news is this, that salvation was not just for the Jews, it was from the Jews. Because Jesus Christ came and placed himself under the law of the Jews. You see, a sovereign God just assume he can do anything he wants to. So you should assume that if a sovereign, almighty God is going to reintroduce himself to his planet, if he's going to launch a new plan for global redemption, if he decided the first century is the perfect time to do it, then you can assume he also could have chosen Rome... He could have said, I'm going to fill the flesh of Caesar Augustus with my glory. That'll get us some traction. That would be a strategic move. Or he could have gone to the Han Empire. He could have said, I'm going to pour all of my glory into Changdi, the emperor of the Han. I'll bring my glory there. That will produce great traction. But instead... This glorious God went to weakness. He went to the heartland and found a little Palestinian baby and pressed all of his glory into that flesh so that his people would know when God speaks, you can trust him. 
I've seated the hearts with the prophets and the patriarchs with my word, and it is reliable. But secondly, in verses 9 through 12, the Apostle Paul wants to remind these Jewish believers, learning to be believers, that hope arrives when diverse peoples are united. Just so you know, it's not a miracle when Chinese people gather together in a room. It's not a miracle when expats move to Singapore and gather together in an expat church. That's just normal. But when God brings together people different in their tradition, in their background, in their dialect, in their language, and makes us one, that, friends, is a miracle. In one of the fundamental covenantal documents of the Hebrew peoples, found it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God introduces as his primary characteristic, I'm a God of unity. We call it the Shema. It's not an English word. It's Hebrew. English is listen. Listen, Israel. The Lord your God is one. That means racism is a sign of a people in open rebellion to a God who brings people near. That means nationalism and global conflict and building walls and dividing nations is humanity living in open rebellion to the God who brings people near. This is the good news. God, through the Jews, a people oppressed by all nations, is going to bring all nations near. When the God of hope comes, He creates unity between Himself and His creation and between His creation and His creation. It's a sign of His arrival. And that's why in John chapter 4, speaking to one of the ethne, a Samaritan, you know what she was? Paranakan. I know what Paranakan means. It's not politically correct, actually. She was of mixed blood. Unclean. They had to have their own temple in Damascus. But Jesus reminded her that this salvation is not just for Jews, but salvation comes from Jews. That's verse 22. Hope arrives in order to bring diverse people near. And third, I think we're, you know, we're, we're Baptists, right? So... Brace yourself like men. You might struggle with this. Hope arrives when power is manifested. Listen to verse 13. May the God of hope fill you 
with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Actually, the word abound is superabound, but we don't speak English like that. It means overflowing in hope. And it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've just got to talk for just a few minutes about our first Christmas in Taiwan. It was 1991, and... Um, I tried to tell this story to my missionary supervisor, and his response is, oh, yeah, that sounds like a missionary story, which is code for you're making it up. But, but this is how it happened. You know, uh, when, when white people go to Taiwan in 1990, there was not nearly as much English spoken there as there is now. And so we, we had to first few weeks get what is called survival language, right? And survival language for white people is learning how to bargain. Because in Vancouver, we go to a shop and the price is on everything. If there's no price, we take it to a scanner and it tells us what the price is. But uh, we, we began shopping in Taiwan, no price on anything. And, and so we, we would have to ask, what's the price? And it was always the same answer for you, sir, special price. Uh, because of that, uh, the six-month survival language was learning the language of bargaining and the timing of when to have that personal display of outrage. So they tell me the price. I go, oh, shasawola. Kaiwan shalaba. You know, you're just trying to slaughter me. And my favorite is, do I look Japanese to you? Meaning, I don't have money. I'm from Canada. And so I, I would practice this everywhere I went. Now, um, you know, it was Christmas time, and we were getting used to lots of things. You know, Taiwanese would compliment us, and they'd never seen white people because we asked to be moved into a Taiwanese neighborhood where there's a long way from foreigners. We just wanted a full immersion, and so we had to get used to Taiwanese compliments, which in my case were, Whoa, <laughs> And then they want to know how much I weigh. And so you think it's just me, right? Then they turn, oh, it's a compliment, you know, because if you're starving, it kills brain cells. That's what I'm telling myself. So, and, and then they would just walk into our house. It's safe. Taiwan was very safe. They just open the door, walk in. Um, I would always say, how, 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 because that's what white people say when we don't understand anything. <laughs> right? So, so and, then, and then go around and ask us how, how, how much everything costs. Right? So, so that's just some background. We had our Christmas tree up, and they asked, why do you have a tree in the house? And we had our manger scene all set out because we wanted to be a testimony to all the people who were calling us fat. And um, we, we also had a very devout uh, Chinese baomu, or ama, chan tai tai, because our youngest son was not even walking. So we had to have her come into our house. She would arrive at 7, and she would stay until about 1 o'clock in the afternoon and watch him while Sherry and I were off at, at language school. Well, as, you, as some of you know, I'm an art major in university because I was hoping to be homeless all of my life. And uh, I am fascinated by Chinese art. So I was going under the underpass, the pedestrian underpass that goes under Roosevelt Road, and there's this old gentleman selling carvings, and I mean, they were beautiful. Uh, and so I asked him, how much? And he said, 
for you, sir, special price, $85 US. I said, I'm from Canada. <laughs> we have pesos. <laughs> Sorry, I lied. I just... <laughs> I said, no, that's too much. And so I began to bargain. I'm a little bit competitive, right? And so 45 minutes, I was squatting in the underpass, bargaining with this old fellow. And eventually, a big crowd gathered. They'd never seen a white guy doing the Indo squat. When are we supposed to be done, by the way? Huh? <laughs> that's the way to get you all to look at your watch as you did it, right? Um, and finally got him down to $25, right? And I, I felt awesome because I took those three carvings home and I put them right in the most conspicuous place, just as people came in, because sooner or later, they're going to ask me, how much do you pay for those? And I'm going to say $25. He wanted 85 and they'd say, oh, putzora. <laughs> I felt very, very, you know, I got, I'm, I'm settling in here. And it was working so well for me until the day that our Chinese pastor came over and, and he looked at those three carvings and in that one horrible moment, I learned that I had bargained 25 missionary dollars for a fulu show. The sign <clears throat> The God of prosperity, longevity. <clears throat> as far as I can tell, the God of fertility had a baby. I already had three boys wasn't looking for help. It was incredibly awkward. I said, oh, sorry, uh, my, you know my name, Bunton, sounds like Bundani. It made all the <laughs> kind of apologies. And, and then I thought, well, it, you know, if God is sovereign, it's never a mistake. So I took those three gods and I lined them up right after the three wise men. <laughs> Be, because my testimony is one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess. <laughs> right? And, and it was working good for me. And so Chun Tai Tai came every morning. Every morning, I, my, my plan is I say goodbye to her. I look at my testimony. And the first morning I go out, I look over at my testimony, and the three gods are lying face down in front of the baby Jesus. And, and you know, that's the horrible thing about having boys. So I called them all in. Well, not the baby. He, he, he couldn't get there. But I called the two older boys in. I said, you guys, you're messing with my testimony, Right? It's a bad witness what you're doing. It's kind of a guilt motivation, right? Sorry, I'm just being honest. I said, you just don't do that. We're here to try and be missionaries, right? We want to share good news. And Chen Tai Tai is here. She sees what you guys are doing. Please don't mess. Now, if you've had boys, you know the oldest one said, it wasn't me. And the younger one said, it wasn't me. <laughs> because the second born are real clever that way. And, and I said, just don't do it again. So second day, same thing. And this, the second day, I, I preached a sermon. And I even brought the little one and laid him down. It was a good sermon because everybody was crying, including Chun Tai Tai. <laughs> and I said, we, we are missionaries here. I want to be a good testimony to all our neighbors. You know they call your mother fat, and, and you're, you're ruining our testimony by playing around with the manger scene. Besides that, it tells a story. Let it tell a story. And, and, and then they all went away crying. Chun Tai Tai picked up the little one, everybody crying. But I had to do it, right? Because boys, you know what they're like. Don't look at boys. On the third day, it was exactly the same. And so I just went to Chun Tai Tai. And I said, you know, Mrs. Chun, I, I need to apologize to you. You know we're missionaries. We, we represent Jesus. And 
three days in a row, you have seen my children deliberately disobey me. And, and I, I, I'm going to do better, but forgive us. It's, it's not Jesus. And usually, she always addressed me with respect. Usually, she said, Ba mon cher, whatever. By this time, she said, You don't understand anything. I said, what, what, what do you mean? She, she said, boys never go near the altar. She called it all. They never go near the altar. Uh, I said, so tell me, tell, I know my boys. They, they share my genes. Right? I, you don't need to defend them. I know you love them. But you don't, no, they never go near. I said, so what's your explanation? And hear this. This is what she said. It's this way. Your God is so great, even as a baby, our gods cannot bear his weight. I'm not telling you that this missionary believed the power of God knocked over those gods. What I am telling you, though, is a Buddhist woman did. What, what if the biggest problem the gospel has is not the culture out there? What, what if the biggest problem the gospel has in Singapore is the fact that people out there are more spiritual than people in here? What, what if I've become so educated so proudful and intellectual that I'm always looking for something in my skill set or something my family has done to indicate growth or success or a reason to celebrate, and I so seldom believe that God can do more than I could ask or think or even imagine. Because Ian's strategy would be Let's go to Caesar Augustus. Ian's strategy would have said, Han, let's go Han. 4,000 years of culture, man. But the Almighty went to a broken down people who was constantly obsessing over this suffering. Everyone despised them. They were constantly objects of global inequality. And God went to them and was great. You know why I hope GBC is never great? Because that would suggest to me we've spent way too much time polishing the pot. And not enough time just saying, sure, we're broken. If you're visitors, by the way, we're, we're broken. But God is glorious. And He is mighty to save. There's nothing special about our songs, about this preacher, about our culture and tradition as a church. But He brings hope powerfully. Do you understand that captives are liberated when there is power that is greater than the power that chains them? Do you realize that the blind see when the light is greater than the darkness that blinds them? And, and that is why when Jesus announced his ministry, 
he stood and read scripture, and then he sat down, which that's where we get our term, the seat of authority. I'm just a man, I'm standing. Jesus sat down and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to captives. He has anointed me to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favor of the year of God's favor. That's why I say, you know, GBC, you got to celebrate more. Do you not realize Christ bankrupted heaven for you? That's worth a song. That's that's worth some laughter, some joy. Stop looking back and look to the hope of our salvation. I wonder if this Christmas you would look forward with expectation. Not the expectation of the gifts you're going to get or the gifts you're going to give, but with the expectation that God is going to do something that requires His power in your life, in your family, in your relationships, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your church, and in this nation. Could it be? It would be just like God to go to one of the smallest nations on this planet and to be great here. I want to invite you to bow with me just for a moment. I don't know what anxiety you have been obsessing over. But would you dare trust God more than you trust your fears? Would you remember that he is the one that fulfills his promises and proves himself to be truth? Would you celebrate that it's not studying about him that gives you life. He is life. He is the way. His name is truth. In this Advent season, he is the arrival of hope. Not the meat, but the gravy. To remind you, it's on the way. He brings disparate peoples together. He draws us, though we were aliens and foreigners to him, he draws us near to him. And he brings with him power. Not just liberating captive power. Not just giving blind sight power. He comes with raise the dead power. You've got neighbors all around you. They are the walking dead. You think you can resurrect them with a more skillful presentation this Christmas? No, you cannot. Only raise the dead power raises the dead. Father God, this Christmas...
Fill our hearts with expectation. As we expect the arrival of hope and peace and joy, fill our hearts with expectation. Forgive us for trying to do everything humanly possible to raise money, to grow a church, to reach our friends, and help us to be people who submit to your work. Fill us with the joy of our salvation. And let that joy be contagious for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we sing the song of response.